0: That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah.
1: Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Hello, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner once again welcoming you to Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. And we are the Lewis family. This is Linda Lewis... And this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And
2: this is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner.
1: And we are here tonight to answer all of your financial planning questions. Call us with whatever question is on your mind about your own personal financial issues.
2: Well, Doug, we have a lot to cover tonight um, while we're waiting for our first caller. And um, one of the things that comes up frequently is the question of IRA withdrawal rules. Right. And um, a lot of people may not know that IRA withdrawal rules differ owner by owner. I think you're
1: right, Deborah. I don't think many people actually are aware that there are differences in the rules.
2: A lot of people uh, don't know that um, it depends on who's the owner. So when you're calculating how much you would be required to withdraw from an IRA, it's gonna be based on who's the owner. So let's start with the original owner. What are some of those rules that apply to original
1: owners? Okay, well of course, the original owner is gonna be the person who owns the IRA. He could all. There might also be a spouse, that would be another possible owner, spouse who's a beneficiary, or it could be a non-spouse who's an heir. But let's take the original owner. The rules for the original owner, when he or she hits that magical age of 70 and a half, he must start taking distributions. No ifs, ands, or buts, you must. Now, the deadline for that first RMD is what what it's called. That minimum distribution is called the RMD. And the deadline is April 1 of the year after he turns 70 and a half. Okay. Then all subsequent RMDs, have to be taken by December 31 of each tax year. And to avoid a big tax bite, by taking the first and second distributions in the same year, most people are going to take that first one in the year they turn 70 and a half. Makes sense. It does, because if not, you're going to have two of them coming out, and both of them are taxable. Worse than that, if you fail to take the required minimum on time the IRS is going to suck you with a 50% penalty of the missed amount. Let's say that your required minimum distribution was $10,000 and you didn't get in time, out in time. You now have a $5,000 penalty.
2: Plus the amount has to be taken out Plus too. <laughs> the amount's
1: got to be taken
2: out. Ouch, ouch. Okay, so that takes care of the people who are the original, or this takes care of you as the original owner. Now, to calculate the RMD, how do we do that?
1: First of all, you take the account balance, the whole IRA account balance on December 31 of the previous tax year, and then you divide it by the remaining years of your life. And by the way, you can't just do that for one IRA and have other IRAs. Okay. The internal...
2: So it's going to be for all IRAs that I own, there needs to be a snapshot on December 31 of the account value of all IRAs.
1: And all 401ks. And all 401ks. All of them bunched together. That is the total that they use. Okay. And then you divide that by your remaining life. And let's say that you had a half million dollar portfolio. Then the RMD, the required minimum for a 72-year-old... Would be $19,000. Okay, how about if I'm 80? If you're 80, it's going to jump up. That minimum to come out has to be $26,000.
2: Okay, obviously based on the life expectancy.
1: Right. The IRS says that each year you're getting one year closer to death, so the amount you got to take out has got to be bigger and bigger.
2: Okay, so the original owner rules are going to be the ones that are the lowest. Right. Okay. Now, spouse beneficiary. Let's say I have um, died and my spouse is now inheriting my IRA. Okay.
1: Now, this is a little tricky because the spouse has two options when she inherits an IRA. First of all, the money can roll right into her own IRA, 100% tax-free. Okay. Nice. Or it could remain she could remain a named beneficiary of the inherited IRA and not roll it over. If she rolls it over into her own IRA, then she won't have to take out any required minimums until she turns 70 and a half. And this, by the way, Deborah, is the route that most spouses take.
2: Okay, so it's sort of like uh, the deceased spouse uh, leaves it to the remaining spouse and it almost, the rules just, just apply but are transferred
1: you roll it into it. that's right okay. and then she doesn't have to do anything until she hits has that 70, 70 and, and, half and a half age okay now, on the other hand the widow has a second choice yes the widow could stay a named beneficiary and not roll it over and in that case then if she's a named beneficiary she won't take her required minimums until her late husband would have turned 70 and a half and then she has to take distributions based on her life expectancy not his, because he has passed away. Okay, uh, But she has an advantage over a non-spouse beneficiary. Let's say it's not a spouse who inherits the IRA. All right. And, and so, at least she has a, benef- a, a benefit, you know, she gets a better deal that way. The spouse gets to recalculate the life expectancy, which results in smaller distributions. But the RMDs, the required minimums, they're lower always as an owner, and then the next lowest Is for the spouse beneficiary. So here it's going to be
2: if I'm the child of a deceased IRA owner.
1: That's the third one. Okay. This is the non-spouse. And the non-spouse heir starts the RMDs the year after the original owner dies. You can see you have to know the rules. The most important thing is work with somebody.
2: Yes. That it's very complicated. Something as simple as when and how am I allowed to take uh, withdrawals? And then when and how am I required to take withdrawals?
1: And don't try and do it yourself because you're facing that big 50% penalty no matter which one of these three you are.
2: And you know, what I love about what we do is, is um, 99% of the time is we are meeting with clients, answering questions that generally, uh, there, or I should say it like this, there are generalizations of rules out there, but what someone wants to know when they come to see us is how do I apply it to my situation?
1: Deborah, you are so exactly right because you're touching on the difference between the generality of rules that people read about in the paper, online, and Correct. so forth, right. versus mm-hmm. the real life practicality of everybody's situation. Everybody has a different situation. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified
2: Financial Planner, at Lewis Financial Management, 919 872 7000. 919 872
1: 7000. We've got Sam on the line. Sam, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can we help you this evening?
3: Uh, yes, Doug. I had a question about, uh, I guess I, my question is about REITs. Oh. Uh, I've got a uh, portfolio that's pretty much uh, all mutual funds. And I was wondering if uh, it's practical at the age of, say, 55 to incorporate REITs into my po- portfolio.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, Sam. You say you're 55 years old. Are you married or single? i uh, married. You're married. Are you working or retired? I'm uh, working. All right. Income?
3: Uh, about 100000
1: 100000 income. Your wife working or retired? She's working. And her income? Uh, forty thousand. All right. So we have a combined family income of one hundred and forty thousand dollars. And your investment portfolio is mainly mutual funds. First of all, tell me what of uh, what uh, the portfolio itself. How much is in non in retirement portfolio assets, and how much is in retirement?
2: So, Sam, he's asking the difference between the personal and the retirement assets,
1: right? You mean the uh, like a 401k? Right. If, if I presume you've got a 401k if you're working or some sort of retirement account, right? Yes. Okay. So you have some investments over there, and you have some that are not in your 401k that are just owned directly by you, right? Right. Okay. So give me the breakout of those two different ones, and then we'll talk about REITs in each of those two, because they differ.
3: Well, I, I think probably, uh, probably 75% of my uh, investments are in, in, in mutual funds.
1: All right. So seventy. So what's the size of your four hundred one k? Let's take them one at a time, approximate.
3: Uh, about three hundred
1: thousand. All right. And you say about seventy five percent of that is is in mutual funds. Correct. Okay. All right. Seventy five percent is mutual funds in the four hundred one k. And what's the other twenty five percent in? Uh,
3: the uh, well, I would say about twenty five percent four hundred one k, and the rest in mutual
1: funds.
2: And the rest is in the personal portfolio.
1: Yes.
2: Okay. All right. Okay,
1: I misunderstood. So let's round it off. Okay. So he's saying seventy-five percent of his combined portfolio is
2: correct. Is in the retirement accounts, and then the uh, and then twenty-five percent in non-retirement. All right. So So if we if we made it uh, nice and easy, three twenty-five in the retirement and one seventy-five in the personal. And then the question then becomes, Doug, well, how do you, how do you base on a, um, on a REIT or not a, a REIT, REIT? On whether or not to purchase. 55. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. And in the two different portfolios, because I think that's the bigger the bigger that is. question for Sam is, well, right. is it? Yes.
1: Okay. So let's get some basics down. First, Sam, do you know what a REIT or R-E-I-T is exactly? Uh,
3: yes. Yeah, Real Estate Investment Trust.
1: That's right. These are called alternatives, meaning they are alternative to stock and bond investments. This is the world of alternatives. And alternatives can be very risky, by the way. Other alternatives are things like uh, commodity funds, hedge funds, and so forth. But the world of alternatives also has real estate investment trusts. And these break down into traded ones that are trading on the stock exchange and non-traded. So we have traded REITs and non-traded REITs. I personally am a little bit nervous about the traded REITs because they are really moving up and down just like any other stock. Mm -hmm. So the REITs that I feel more comfortable about are the non-traded REITs because these do not move with the stock market. So now, if your portfolio has a large enough position in traded investments, such as mutual funds, then we could take a certain percentage of that Let's say, take maybe 10% of that or 15% of that entire portfolio and put it in something that is not trading, not subject to the stock market, which would stabilize the portfolio.
2: Okay. So now we have something that's not going to um, be just like stocks and bonds or move just like with the stock and bonds. So it's going to be alternative to, alternative to that. And then it's also not going to be trading and moving up and down like the value of a mutual fund or an individual stock or bond. Right. How do you decide whether or not it's appropriate for your personal portfolio or your retirement portfolio?
1: And even more important, how do you decide which REIT to get? Because there's all kinds of... Non-traded. Of non-traded. REITs that are out there. Mm. I like the ones that are plain Jane income producers. Okay. In other words, I don't like the exotic ones that are buying a bunch of raw land and going to be building buildings. And you've got a lot of different types of risk. What's going to happen there? I prefer the REITs that are buying existing properties in a large pool like a mutual fund maybe.
2: And collecting
1: real established
2: rents from real real tenants.
1: Very good, Deborah. And you know, there's one thing about the REIT that has a special tax law, isn't it?
2: There is. So if the REIT as a uh, commercial entity is is established for one reason, and the biggest reason is so they don't have to pay corporate tax. Well, the benefit to them is also a benefit to the investor, which means that if they pay out... And they must, if they if they follow that guideline of paying out, what is it, 70, 90% They've of gotta all they got
1: to pay 90% of everything that income, comes in, which is basically the rent. The rents. They've got to pay it out to the shareholders. So in Sam's case, it would be going to him if he owned it individually. It'd be going to his IRA if he owned it in his IRA. So if
2: it's owned in his IRA and he's 55 years old, not, not, not even looking at retirement, if he's happily employed, then here it could be adding to another uh, investment in the IRA portfolio.
1: Yes, and there's two ways to look at it. First, let's take the non-IRA. Okay, Many of the REITs, which are very attractive to a lot of investors because they pay a very high dividend because of exactly what you just said, Deborah, uh, that they don't have the double taxation that a company like IBM or any other corporation has. That means more of the profits flow right out without having to pay tax. There are good ones and bad ones out there. Exactly. There are traded ones and non-traded ones. You have to know what you're doing. You have to look at the risks very carefully and uh, go through the process. But in, the, in, in, Sam's, in your personal portfolio, Sam, in the portfolio that's not the IRA, I would tell you that the dividend that comes off of these REITs, and yes, they are suitable for you depending on which REITs and what are the other mutual funds, but part of that is non-taxable. And so, that makes the effective yield even higher. The rest of it, of course, is taxable on the dividend. Over in the IRA, or in your 401k, rather, over there, it could also be, but the 401k, it depends on whether it's available. Now, it's going to be up to who's handling the poor 401k. A lot of 401ks do not allow non-traded REITs.
2: I would say 99% of them don't. And so, this is where it becomes an option for you at the point when you leave your employer and you're designing your own IRA portfolio, that might be the only time that you're allowed uh, to choose that as an investment choice. Take some
3: of the money that would normally contribute to my 401k and put those in REITs?
1: Now, that makes a good... Well, not the way you said it, though, Sam. Because the thing on a REIT that is different from a mutual fund... A mutual fund, legally, is called an open-ended investment company, so you can always be putting money in on a, on a monthly basis. When you go into one of the non-traded REITs, they have an established investment amount that they're going to be raising from the public. Let's say it's a a one billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. a a billion dollars. Okay. Well, once they have received that one billion from investors, from the total number of investors, then they can't receive any other investments. For all intents and purposes, it's now closed. Right. So maybe let's say your portfolio could use a thirty thousand dollar non-traded REIT. Typically, you would only do that in one lump purchase because you can't be continually adding little bits to it. It doesn't work like a mutual fund.
2: So, so in And this- there is
1: a liquidity risk that you have to always be aware of on the non-traded REITs, and that's very important, Deborah.
2: That's right, that's right. So the size of the personal portfolio, the kind of REIT that you'd be going into, the liquidity ratio factor, all of these concerns are uh, significant enough to where you'd want to meet with a financial planner, you'd want to set up a time, give us a call, so that we can... Sam,
1: Sam, did we give you our phone number yet? No, you didn't. Try, jot down 919 7-0-0-0. That's 919 You can also go and take a look at uh, at myself and Deborah and Linda on our website. The website is DougAndLinda.com. And call our office. Uh, we will schedule an appointment to meet with you. I think you could probably enjoy learning more about the REITs. Uh, I think you need to understand how to go through the world of non-traded REITs to see First of all, if they are suitable for your portfolio, and second of all, which ones?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So while we can't talk about specifics, we definitely can see... Um,
1: As know, a class of investments, we do like the, the non-traded REITs. That's right. But we have to That's realize right. that there are more and more risks that people have to be aware of. And I like of.
2: the fact that, um, that the question came from someone who, at least in our world, is... Uh, uh, where most listeners would be in the same category. I'm, I'm not profoundly wealthy, and I'm not just beginning my career, but I've now gotten to the point to where I'm wondering about what other investments are possible for either my personal portfolio or my 401k, age 55 is IRA. perfect. That's, That's exactly right, Sam. It is. Well, I, do
1: I, do hope, I hope I hope we've given you. Can, can you? Th- I'm sorry. Say it again. I'll do some little more research on my own and give you guys a call. Oh, thank you so much, Sam. We appreciate your call. Thank you. If you'd like
2: further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Well, and one of the questions uh, that, that, mo- that people are often concerned with is, well, when I die and when my wealth is needing to be inherited by my heirs, how should I design it and plan it? And um, in the world of estate planning, people often have to consider, well, if I have um, an, a, a, a taxable brokerage account, which would be personal, not owned in a retirement account, or if I have a 401k and or an IRA And if I have a Roth IRA, if I take those three categories, taxable accounts, 401k or IRA, or third, a Roth IRA, how do I pick which of these funds is best preserved for the bequests? And this is, you know, this is a a complicated question because how much should I use and how do I design it to where I can have enough to live off of? But how do I evaluate which should be left for heirs? What are the benefits?
1: Deborah, it's a really good question because I like to understand who's asking that question. And so often there is the uh, attorney who's asking the question from the viewpoint of estate preservation, and then there is the investor who's asking the question from his entire his retirement needs. And really, we need to look at the two together. I always want the client, the investor himself, to think of himself first before going to, well, what's the best way to take less for myself and leave more for my kids or, and so on. But I will say this. Of those three that you mentioned, the Roth IRA, amongst a lot of people, is called the Cadillac of accounts for people to inherit. Now, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I know that it is out there. The Roth IRA is great. I
2: and I think a lot of people say that because of the potential <clears throat> lack of taxation.
1: That's right. That's right. Let's take the first one, the Roths, and consider... A conversion.
2: Yes, we get that question a lot. Doug, um, uh, I, you know, a client comes in, Doug, I'm looking at my whole portfolio and I have this Roth. Does it make sense? They often phrase it like that. No, if that. I don't have the Roth. No, no, no. Let's say if they do. Oh, uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So, Doug, I have this large IRA. Yes. And I'm wondering if it makes sense for me to convert it to the Roth.
1: Usually the that's question. right, because they've heard from some <laughs> attorney that you can then, at death, leave that tax free. Well, I don't like that because you have to pay the tax now. And the idea that I'm going to go ahead and use some sort of a mathematical cost-benefit analysis of a Roth conversion, and if I live long enough, I by paying the taxes now when I convert, because you do when you do a Roth conversion, you pay the taxes now. Personally, I never recommend anybody do a conversion. I don't think you should... Consider why should I pay taxes now to so save if I live long enough, I can give more to my benefit. That mm-hmm. doesn't make right. sense to me. But All the, right. All well, right. go what to about, the second yeah. one. What,
2: what about um,
1: uh, individual accounts? All right. Now, here we have something very interesting, Deborah. The individual non-retirement account has this marvelous thing called the step-up in basis. Other assets that you hand down, other than the Roth or the IRA or the 401k, things like stocks bonds, mutual funds that are in regular taxable accounts and have greatly appreciated, then your heirs are going to enjoy what's called a step-up in the cost basis of these assets, which could save them a bundle in capital gains taxes.
2: Well, as of her fresh cost basis is the original price paid for an investment. Right. And it's the starting point for measuring profit or loss on the sale of an investment. Oh, my goodness. And that's a a huge... um, a baseline for so many events. But yeah,
1: suppose you had a mutual fund that years ago you bought for $100,000 and you die and it is now worth... A million. A million dollars.
2: That's right. Everything right. was reinvested. So how much
1: is the gain there?
2: $900,000. So you're
1: going to pay tax if you sell it the day before you die on the gain, the which is $900,000. Or if you I could sh- leave it yes to my heirs yes and
2: I could now give them the b- the added benefit of them receiving it with the stepped up cost basis of a million dollars.
1: And if they sell it the day after I die when they receive it, how much tax do they pay? Zero. Zero. Because the tax is on the gain. Yes, this is a phenomenal tax break. This is the step-up in basis rules. There are two things that don't qualify for step-up in basis. Okay, what are those two things? One of them are annuities.
2: All right, that makes sense because it's an insurance contract.
1: That's right. A lot of people don't know that, that one of the reasons that we don't like annuities very often is they do not get a step-up in basis and they are 100% taxable as if it's a salary at the day that you die and somebody receives it. And the other are the U.S. savings bonds. Uh, So again, my view is, Think of your own needs first. Don't think of let's go out and see which one to tap first so I can save more taxes and for giving my kids a better. That's not the proper way to do it. If you're taxing your taxable account for living expenses, then one idea might be to focus on selling assets that have a smaller gain and save the larger ones. But personally, the financial planning approach that we use in our office is far different from this.
2: Well, the last uh, type of account that is out there is going to be this the traditional or, or normal or regular IRA. So let's say uh, you have a, an IRA and, um, or, or you're, av- you're evaluating whether or not you should, you know, what you should do with the IRA versus the Roth, which we've already talked about and the individual account. How do we evaluate the, the IRA?
1: Well, there really isn't much to evaluate there, Deborah, because the tax deferred retirement account. The traditional IRA or the 401k, it is among the priciest and the most expensive types of gifts for heirs to receive. That's true because there was never, there's no step up in basis. It all comes out as ordinary income. But on the other hand, that's okay. Uh, It was designed, it never had tax. Now, personally, I like to advise clients not to go ahead and just sort of hold back while while you're retired. Draw it out. Draw it out now, and if you don't need it, send it over to your personal portfolio, and then guess what? At your death, it all gets a step up in basis, everything that flowed out. So that's the way I would address the way to consider leaving assets to your heirs.
2: So it's very interesting that a lot of these uh, topics that people throw out, you know, how do I leave, um, how do I deal with taxes, how do I deal with IRAs, how do I deal with retirement plans versus um, personal portfolios, how do I find out more about REITs, all of these things are so closely intermingled that really working with a financial planner is the best route and definitely why we're here tonight, answering your questions. Check out our website, DougAndLinda.com. And... um, If you make an appointment with us, we are giving a free book to uh, you uh, when you come in for your first meeting. We're giving out The Wealthy Barber, Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth, and Middle Class Millionaire.
1: Ralph, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you this evening?
4: Uh, I have some property out of state. Uh, It consists of about eight acres a house and a trailer that my children are currently residing in. Uh, I'd like to know how I could pass that on most economically to my children.
1: Well, how old are you, Ralph? I'm fifty-five. Fifty-five years old. You're married. Yes, I am. What's the value of the combined estate that you and your wife have?
0: Maybe nine hundred thousand.
1: All right, and the property in that's out of state. The uh,
0: property in Pennsylvania is valued somewhere between two hundred and fifty and three hundred.
1: And what is the cost that you paid for that property, Ralph? That's called the cost basis.
0: The accumulated cost over the period of time we've owned it with the improvements and everything that's on it probably is somewhere around uh, 190 to uh, 100, 200,000, maybe.
1: All right, let's take a look at this then. First of all, what type of estate planning have you and your wife already done?
0: Uh, very little, really. I think what we're talking about though is
4: how do we transfer it now, not after our, we're deceased?
1: Well, if you just want to transfer, you just switch the title over. That's no big deal. But, uh, but there are ramifications you need to be aware of. Okay, that's what I'm after. And the question is, are you concerned about estate taxes or capital gains taxes?
4: Uh, probably capital gains taxes and, and loading them into something they can't afford to uh, handle at this time.
1: Well, if you just give them the property by transferring the the title over to them, then the cost basis of $190,000 now belongs to them. And if they turn around and sell it, and they sell it for $250,000, then they will have a $60,000 capital gain, and maybe uh, they'll pay about $25,000 in taxes. They
4: should have that problem.
1: On the other hand, if if they inherit it, then there is a step-up in basis And they can sell it with no capital gains tax.
4: So So there isn't really anything that keeps me from just gifting that property to the kids.
1: Well, the gifting is limited by the estate taxes. Okay. However, you could also go ahead and give them the entire amount and still have no gift taxes. But at the time of your death, then they would have used some of the estate tax credits. I see. So the first issue is whether you are concerned about the estate taxes or not. Now there is one other way that it can be done to avoid both gift taxes and estate taxes. In the event they wanted to sell the property, then we would do it through a charitable trust during your lifetime. And there is no capital gains issue at that time. I see. Why do you want to give it to them now then?
0: Well, I guess it's, uh, I, I really, um, uh, don't want to be tied into the uh, state property anymore. And, uh, uh, they really can't afford to go out and get a mortgage to buy the property. So it's, it seemed the, the best way to take care of
1: them. I mean, why not just let them live in it and not have to use up any, and then at least they, when they inherit it, there'll be the cost basis will be stepped all the way up to the value. I see. Then you're not using any uh, any of the estate tax credit, and you're also at the same time not using, uh, not co- you're helping them with the capital gains issue. That sounds reasonable. You know, if fortunately you live another 20 years or 30 years, then all of that appreciation gets stepped up at the time that they, they they inherit it, and then they can turn around and sell it the next day and pay no taxes. I see.
0: That sounds like the right way to be. Yeah.
1: If you're not worried about mortgage or ownership, I would go ahead and let them live in it. I see. Ralph, well, that's what we've been doing. Yes, ma'am.
5: One of the things that, that might help is... You know, the questions that you and your wife have about your situation, it would be helpful if you would jot them down. And then when you go to use a financial planner or an advisor that can help you sort all this out and get it all squared away so so that everything's square, so that, it, you know, if something should happen, that you and your wife have got everything in order the
0: future. Yeah, that uh, for way the we have it written down so that the rest of the family would know about it
5: too. Right, right. I mean, just, you know, the specific questions that you have, you and your wife, Write them down, and then when you go to use an advisor, you'll have some of those issues put down on paper.
4: I appreciate your help.
5: And if you, you know, if you'd like any more information, our number in Raleigh is eight seven two seven thousand. Yes, ma'am. And I'll be happy to send you some information. Thank you kindly. All right, Bye-bye. thanks for calling. Well, let's
2: talk about uh, how to tap an IRA early without a tax penalty, because uh, some people. And if you're a listener, you may uh, have this question. If you have a need, how are you able to tap your, early, your IRA early and uh, not be subject to that
1: 10% extra levy? Well, you we make an early withdrawal from an IRA and you may be hit with a big penalty, a 10% tax penalty. But there's a bigger may than you might think because we financial planners generally warn against tapping an IRA early. Not just because of the potential tax penalty. There's also the loss of any investment gains that could have been racked up, because you can leave it there until you're 70 and a half years old. Uh, so, if you have any other way to get to the money, to get the money that you need, we generally advise don't go to your IRA.
2: But if it's, it needs to be used, and if it's your last resort, there are some things you need to consider.
1: That's right. The first thing, of course, Deborah is. What are the basic rules on taxation of IRA withdrawals? So, if all of your contributions to traditional IRAs were tax deductible, that means all of your withdrawals are going to be taxable, and they're going to be taxed at the highest income rate called ordinary income. If you take a distribution from an IRA before you're 59 and a half years old, then you are generally going to be hit with three taxes— your first is going to be your regular tax to the IRS. Your second is going to be your tax to North Carolina. And the third is a penalty tax for an extra 10%. So there are these three taxes to deal with. And yet, and yet, a lot of people still don't realize that there are exceptions that you can get away with avoiding one of these three, which is the penalty tax.
2: So, Doug, there are a lot of... Um Uh, other ways that you can um, access the IRA. For example, death and disability are usually used for defining it, you know, uh, as far as not needing to be worried about this tax penalty. But there's one big
1: one that a lot of people don't know exists. That's exactly right. We call it, again with an acronym, Section 72T. But in simple language, this is that special way that you can avoid the 10% penalty And you're under 59 and a half, and that's by taking a series of roughly equal payments over five years or until you're 59 and a half, whichever is longer, not whichever is shorter, and you have to do it at least once a year. You know, I'll tell you when we've used this in the past, Deborah. Okay. It's not for people that have huge financial problems, it's people who have achieved financial independence earlier than 59 and a half years old. That's right. They saved a lot. They did They did everything that we told them to for all those years, and now they're, let's say, 52 years old, and they can retire. They can tell the well, boss. Well, I'm
2: thinking of a gentleman that, you know, just in the last couple of years had, wanted to exercise that, and he was 57. So he had a couple of years. What can I do to to, right. to uh, he, he access would. my 401k? That's right, But well, He was <laughs> <laughs> already a 10- <laughs> boss, sayonara. I'm out of here.
1: Right. But what do I do? You're right. I'm not 59 and a half. Okay. And then we come to this section 72t, which says that you can go ahead, and you may find a way to take a series of equal payments. But even the IRS says you want to do this by consulting first a financial professional like us. The amount is going to depend on which of three different IRS approved calculation methods you can choose. All three of these are available to you, but they're based on life expectancy. They are complicated, but we have indeed enjoyed using them, helping clients leave work early because they've already made it, and not have to pay that 10% penalty.
2: That's right. So one of those ways that you can uh, access or withdraw cash before age 59 and a half, it's the substantially equal periodic payments, IRS code 72 t. Complicated, but very useful if you've, um, if you've got that need and that 10% penalty. This is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Our number at the office is 919-872-7000. Call me at 919-872-7000.
1: This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner, answering all of your money matters. Who do you want to talk to, Lynn?
2: Scott.
4: Yes. How are you? I'm fine. How are y'all? Welcome Hi, to the
1: show. Welcome to the show. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
4: Uh, I have a question about the percentage to contribute to my employer's 401k plan.
1: All right. Uh, how old are you, Scott? 32. 32 years old, married or single?
4: Married with two children.
1: Married with two Okay. What's your income? Uh, 60. 60,000. How about your wife's income?
4: Um, Stay-at-home mom.
1: All right. So, 60,000 is the family income. And uh, what kind of 401k plan do you have? What do you, What are your options?
4: Um, There is uh, a growth fund, an international fund, a bond fund, and a GIC. All
1: right. Let's look at the rest of your picture first, Scott. What do you have in your personal investment portfolio aside from this?
4: Um, Two IRAs with about 30000 in it. All right. Um, mutual funds with about
1: $8,000. All right.
4: Uh, maybe a $1,000 or so in cash. We've got it in a rental property that that's about $100 a month.
1: What's the value of the rental property?
4: Uh, 75000
1: The mortgage on it? Uh, $50,000. Do you get 25000 equity there? Yes. I think I'd get rid of that one by the way, it's, it looks like it's hurting you, I don't like the way things are stacking up because you haven't accumulated much and, and I at least I see 25000 of equity there, I think I'd try and unload that one. Okay. Uh, what else you got? Um, Is that about it?
4: Uh, other than equity in our home and...
1: Don't count that one.
4: Equity in vehicles.
1: Don't count that one.
4: Okay.
1: All right. Um last question is is expenses you're bringing home you're making 60,000 what are your living expenses running
4: Oh uh, probably probably
1: 3,000 a month all right well here's what it tells me if you' ma- if you're spending 3,000 a month that's 36, thousand a year at of 60 if I uh, somewhere the rest of it is not all going to taxes no, which means that somewhere there's a hole in the bucket. Because that's twenty four thousand left over, and I don't think you're paying twenty four thousand in taxes.
4: Well, we do two hundred a month into the mutual funds that I mentioned earlier. All right. Um, two different funds.
1: Okay. What I think I what I think you should do before you solve the four hundred one k question, I think you need to meet with a certified financial planner and focus on a living expense analysis to determine your net margin. That number at the office, by the way, is 919-872-7000. Once you do that or in the process, you want to have the planner help you break out your your expenses into three categories. What we call your uh, recurring monthly expenses, these are your RMEs. They recur every month uh, and doesn't matter whether they're discretionary or not, but you just do them every month. You know what I mean? You eat out and so forth and so on. The things that happen every month, those are your RMEs. Okay. Then you want to have your non-monthly fixed expenses, the things that don't recur every month but you don't have any choice on them like insurance payments and things like that. They either happen quarterly, semi-annual or annual. Once you have those two numbers together, we want to add them on a yearly basis, divide by 12 to come back monthly and that will give you the amount that's available to invest. With that number I'd like you to split it about 50-50, 401k and personal. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, That's the best I can do on the air, but I think that I'd want to see an equal amount going into the 401k that's going into your personal investment portfolio.
4: Okay. And the goal was to have retirement funds equal the amount of non-retirement funds. Yes,
1: yes, because especially at age 32, you have a possibility of, golly, 30 years before you may be able to touch this money, and we don't know what's coming in your future. So I do like the tax benefits. I'm sure, by the way, you're putting the money into the growth or the international, right? Yes, yes.
4: Pause the growth.
1: Good. Okay. Don't touch the bond or the gig at your age. Right. I hope that helps. And if you need any more information or any more help, jot down my office number. It's eight seven two seven thousand. That's nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. And some people remember that as just USA 7000.
5: Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks for calling and thanks for listening to the show, Scott. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, Doug, um, there was another interesting article that we saw in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I saw that
2: article, too. It was about if you're not saving, you're losing out. And I thought that was just so catchy. So I read the article, and the whole topic was about knowing the amount that you save as a percentage of your post-tax income. And Doug, the article spe- specifically said over the years uh, that this gentleman had met many different types of Americans, and the and uh, he He really was talking about clients who, or people who are similar to the clients that we meet with year after year. And those are Americans who have amassed seven-figure portfolios, and many of them don't have huge paychecks, and most were just so-so investors. And he said they shared one key attribute.
1: What was that one key attribute? (laughs) They had great savings habits. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm glad that he agrees with me. (laughs) Because that's what we've been preaching for about 30 years now. That's exactly right.
2: Yeah, you always say it's
1: not how much you make, it's how much you keep. That's exactly right. You have to be saving. If you're not saving, you're losing and then it comes down to a couple of things. First of all, no apologies. There is no reason for an apology. You know, uh, yesterday I had a uh, a company come and do an annual event where they took where they emptied our uh, they drained our, our septic tank. Okay. And the 19 year old boy who was uh, working there, uh, doing the job for me. Uh, He was bemoaning the fact that his life was running away and he had wasted so much time and everything. And poor guy, he didn't have a college education. And So what did you say? Well, I asked him, first of all, how old he was. And he said he was 19. I said, said, it's okay. Your life hasn't run away just yet. But I said, I can tell you one crucial thing to do. You should take every paycheck you get. He gets paid once a week. I said, every paycheck you get, put aside 10% of what you pay. Wow. He said, well, I do more than that now on every every paycheck. (laughs) I said, you don't have anything to worry about. I said, you're doing just buying right you don't worry about whether you're emptying septic tanks you need to just get these habits and if you keep this habit as you find out what life has in store for you in the future you will accumulate a lot of money
2: you really will i mean the guideline is usually you know you need to save 10 percent, but really in reality 12 to 15 is going to is going to probably serve you more. Now, granted, uh, this young man is an example of that uh, You know, person saving more. What are some of the guidelines,
1: Doug? Well, I think the first guideline has to do with uh, any uh, any well, you have to look at your expenses. Okay. I always want to look at your expenses, but not all of your expenses. Okay. I like to divide your expenses into three categories. All right. The first category of your expenses, those are your recurring monthly expenses. That's your lifestyle. Okay. How much you're spending on gasoline each month, how much you're spending on a mortgage if you're paying it, how much on going out to dinner or pizzas. How much? All of your monthly expenses, those are your recurring monthly expenses. Those are your RMEs, we call all of them. Okay. Then number two, got to add in there anything that's not monthly but is fixed and you have no choice on it. How about my car insurance? Uh, if you pay that quarterly, that's exactly right. Okay. Some people pay it monthly, so it's a recurring monthly. Some pay it quarterly.
2: Semi-annually.
1: Semi-annually. That's exactly right. Okay. And then, of course, the third category of expenses are the all the others. The discretionary. The discretionary. That's going to be vacation, clothing, gifts, all those things, and the what if my car breaks down, my maintenance... But coming back to the first thing is to find out what's your recurring monthly expenses. And once you've got those recurring monthly expenses in place, you now need to go to your recurring monthly income. How many septic tanks are you emptying each month (laughs) or whatever? Whatever is your recurring income, Income, you know what it is. And then you subtract the one from the other and you set up an automatic savings with the surplus
2: okay so let's say i have three thousand a month coming in yes and i spend two thousand dollars a month on my fixed monthly expenses and that's not counting my discretionary or those other things right that means for a good number of months during the year i have a one thousand dollar a month surplus that's
1: right that's right okay And 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 that thousand a month and we'll assume that's after tax because you get right. your paycheck coming in. That's right. I'm going to then say that 1000 a month needs to automatically be drafted from your checking account at the beginning of the month. Okay. Not after the month is over. Ah. And to go straight into an investment account. I like a mutual fund as a better place. Let it go in automatically. What do you think we call that? Pay yourself first. Pay yourself first. Because
2: you got to pay everybody else, but you might as well pay yourself first.
1: Right. Once you figure out on paper how much are those recurring expenses, then you don't wait till you've had you've paid those expenses, you know what they are on paper. Now you pay yourself at the beginning. Okay. And of course, as soon as we teach clients this method, right away we find out they're gonna say, Well, but what about one of those other expenses that mm-hmm. pops up?
2: Mm-hmm. And well, you then you just then? don't pay yourself that month. That's
1: right. You just it's back <laughs> it off that month. But you're setting up a default system where you're paying yourself first, and that is going to accumulate, and that is the way to do it. And okay.
2: Then, now, say I'm an average person, okay. and I'm, I'm, I have my $1,000 every, every few months of, 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 I'm sorry, most months of a surplus of my cash flow, and I've set it up. And then by the end of the year, um, my aunt gives me a large gift at the holidays, or I get a raise at the end, midway through the year, any Mm -hmm. sort of a big windfall to me.
1: Right. That windfall then needs to be immediately dumped into that Pay Yourself First Fund because you weren't expecting it. It is not to be, uh, oh, here's some new money, let's spend it. No, 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 dump that into the same account and have that as the double habit. One, pay yourself first, and number two, all windfalls, and you will become financially independent.
2: And that's usually... Just as simple as that. You just start saving, save as much as you can, get it to the 10%, 12%, 15%, and before you know it, you're one of these Americans who uh, gets written about where you've amassed a seven-figure portfolio and you're a middle
5: class millionaire. We've Wonderful. seen it ha- we
1: have seen it happen through year after year.
5: We certainly have. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF.
2: If you'd like further information, call us at 919 7000 Or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com.
1: That's DougAndLinda.com. John, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. My daughter, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can we help you? Hello, John, are you there? I'm here. Okay.
6: Uh, Sorry. Um, Yeah. uh, I had a question. Sure. you could help me out, give me your opinion. Go ahead. I have a... Uh, I'm actually working for a company right now that I'm going to have to retire from. Okay. That company is has a pension plan. All right. Um, and they offer two flavors. Mm-hmm. One is a uh, full pension, and uh, another is a pension, a partial pension with a lump sum. Okay. And... Uh, I'm trying to debate what what the better option would be to take the full pension. I, uh, I'm married. I have my wife, and I want to uh, have a joint survivor. And I'm trying to figure out if it's a uh, if go with a full pension or do a pension, take the lump sum, roll over to an IRA and invest it.
1: Give me a little bit about, first of all, do you have any idea, John, what y'all's family's needs are, your living expense needs?
6: Uh, Per month.
1: Uh, all right. Well, I was thinking per year, but if you only got it per month, I'll multiply.
6: Yeah, around uh, $9,500. All right,
1: 9,500 times 12. So your needs are about 114000 a year. And what do you have in the way of, you're under 62 and a half. So, um, you're under 62, so you, you don't have social security. Uh, what do you have in the way of investment portfolio right now
6: I have a 401k.
1: And how much is in the 401k?
6: It's about a million.
1: One million, and anything else in non-retirement?
6: Um, I have a few mutual funds and stocks.
1: About how much are they worth? Uh,
6: probably about two hundred thousand.
1: All right. So altogether, anything else in the way of cash, or CDs, or anything? I got you to a million two right now. Uh, uh,
6: maybe around twenty thousand.
1: Okay. All right, so we're starting with a million two as if you two the whole rollover. And the advantage of doing the rollover is it's all yours, which means at your death, it's all your wife's. She gets the whole kit and caboodle. And at her death, it's your kids. That's the benefit of doing that. Of course, we have to figure out will it meet your needs or what about taking the pension where you give up part of the principal for the fixed income? All right, let's take a look and see. First of all, 114 divided by, all right, to get your 114,000, you would have to take a, you'd have to withdraw 9% from the million two, Mm -hmm. which of course is unsustainable over the long term. Now, a lot of financial planners that do, would do it in a way that I don't do it, and they would say, how many years is your life expectancy? And they would probably say, yes, you could take 114000 a year, and it would deplete, but you would live beyond the, the depletion. I don't like that. I like you always to die with more than you started with. Yeah. <clears throat> However, we have something else coming in. We've got Social Security coming in in about two, uh, three more years, right? Right. And what's our, what, And how about your wife? Have you got those two numbers together?
6: Mine is about twenty six hundred and hers is half of that. Plus thirteen
1: hundred times twelve equals that's forty six thousand eight hundred. You take that away from the hundred and fourteen thousand and sixty seven thousand divided by the million two. Yeah, that looks very doable. Now I'm, you know, I'm just going to say you need to call my office, schedule an appointment to meet with me, and we'll go through it much more in detail than a quick little down and dirty. But I, it looks to me like you ought to be able to take the full rollover because we could. You would only have to withdraw. Do you mean take
2: the full pension? No,
1: no, rollo- you mean no you pension. Take the
2: full rollover. Do the
1: rollover, the entire no. thing. Take no pension, no partial or pen or full pension, but do the IRA rollover. Because after two years from now, two and a half years, he would only have to be withdrawing 5% and probably his portfolio would be growing. No guarantees, but I would much rather play it out that way as long as you were conservatively positioned and you could get some comfort level of how to do it in a conservative way. I will tell you this. We have done many, many, many of these. And I think, John, your numbers look very attractive.
6: And. Uh, the the question about the pension, um, because I do have to take the pension on top of that, right? No. So I have to. I have a four hundred and one. Well, I th-
1: it it depends on your plan. Do, do you how like, much is the pension? If you, I thought the pension. Were, oh, okay, so no. So the so how much? Is how in much do they the offer you? Yeah, we're going to run out of time. Do okay. I have your phone number, John? Did you give it to the did, did?
2: If you'll stay on the line afterwards, the um we'll we'll keep talking to you um after the show is What's over. What's the
1: lump sum on the on the pension?
6: Yeah, the, 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 the annuity and
1: the... No, 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 the lump sum amount. Oh,
6: it's uh, about
1: 200, $268,000. you are moving definitely away from taking any pension. That moves you up far better. Well, now, the, now the, you're the right. two
2: choices are take full pension, which would be a lifetime annuity, basically, right? The, right, the pension he gives amount, up the principal. gives up the principal, or a partial with the lump sum,
1: so... No, the, he can take the whole lump sum, and no... and.
2: No, I believe, well, well, we have more questions, so John, stay on the line. We'll keep talking after the um, final words, and um, we'll try and answer this question for you, because okay. I, I think there is a piece we're missing here. All right, John, hold on, and we'll be right back with you. Uh, for our listeners, please um, give us a call, 919-872-7000. During the week, we are available to answer these questions that we may not have gotten to tonight for you. And um, of course, any new appointments that are made, we're giving out a free book for um, our new appointments. And see our website, DougAndLinda.com. Thank you, and have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday night.
0: You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand.